Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Daniel Stafford spent most of his adult life traveling across the country in full-time evangelism. He was known as a man of God who delivered God's word with zeal and passion. This sermon was preached in Olathe, Kansas at a revival meeting back in 1984. He titles it, Not Only In, But Out. He's in heaven now, but his ministry lives on through the avenue of Convention Pulpit. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. I do appreciate everyone that's here. Your presence makes a wonderful contribution. And we do appreciate every courtesy you've shown, everything that you've done. I'm sure you did things that I knew nothing about. But aren't you glad that God takes note of it all and he's going to give an ample reward? Uh, I'm glad that it's so. We have enjoyed our stay. We have just been treated royally out uh, with brother and sister uh, Lee. I'll get it out. I get my tanks a tungle sometimes until I just can't hardly uh, talk correctly. But anyway, uh, they have just treated us royally, kind of give us the free run of the house, and what a lovely place that he has. I don't want to be jealous. That wouldn't be right. I don't want to be envious, but I certainly uh, have just admired uh, his handiwork out there. And uh, so we've just really had a good time being uh, in their home. Uh, we've uh, found enough grace to put up with the children. And any time you can put up with a bunch of girls, you just know that it takes a lot of grace. But really, <laughs> it just hasn't been a hard task uh, at all. And uh, then we certainly appreciate the generous uh, offering that you gave us. Uh, I trust that God will continue to bless you here. And don't let the light go out. This community needs a light to shine. They need to know that there is still a reality and grace. And there's far more to professing to be a Christian uh, than just being identified with some group. Uh, we're going to have to have something in the heart that will enable us to live every day. And you're the hope. And I trust you'll just keep on keeping on. Uh, and if you will, I'm sure that God uh, will help you. I want to read to you tonight from the book of Deuteronomy, the 6th chapter, beginning at verse 16. The 6th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, beginning at verse 16. Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. Ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he hath commanded thee. Thou shalt do that uh, which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, uh, that it may be well with thee, uh, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord uh, swear unto thy fathers, to cast out all thine enemies from before thee, as the Lord has spoken. 
And when thy sons asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy sons, We were Pharaoh's bondsmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore under our fathers. Now turning over to chapter se uh, 7 and uh, beginning, uh, or chapter 8 and beginning at verse uh, 7. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks and waters, of fountains and depths uh, that spring uh, out of the valley and the hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, uh, a land of oil, olive, and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, uh, thou shalt not lack anything uh, in it, a land whose uh, stones are iron and out of whose hills uh, thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. We come tonight, Lord, asking that you will let thy word say clearly what we need to hear it say, and then may each of us do what thou would bid us to do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this evening is found in that chapter 6 and verse 23. He brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the good land which he sware unto our fathers. As God would help me tonight, I want to speak to you from this thought, not only out, but in. Now that's not double talk. I think you'll better understand the subject uh, as I try to progress along. Uh, but I want to state it again. I hope you'll get it in your thinking. Not only out, but in. Now, the clearest type of the Christian experience uh, is the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt's bondage, uh, and they're ultimately going on uh, in uh, to Canaan land. The Old Testament is written largely in types and in shadows. It tells of events that actually transpired, uh, but in each of those events there are spiritual truths uh, to be derived. Now, every time that a worshiper would bring his uh, lamb to the priest to be slain, that slain lamb was a spiritual finger pointing to the time when Jesus Christ, the eternal lamb, would pay the sin debt for poor, lost mankind. Once a year when the priest would enter into the holies of the holy and would sprinkle there the mercy seat, that blood was a spiritual finger pointing to the time when Jesus Christ, the eternal high priest, would come and would open in his side a fountain into which the believer by faith can plunge and can be made ever with hope. Now Moses is reviewing for the Israelites what God had done for them and was admonishing them to keep this ever in mind and to be obedient. Then he made the statement of our text which shows us the purpose of God's deliverance. There are three things that stand out in my thinking. I want you to notice them with me tonight. The first thing I want you to notice God brought them out. That may sound simple, but let me say it again, for it's so basic. God brought them out. Notice how that Moses phrased it. He brought us out from thence. 
Now Moses reminded them that it was God and not they themselves that had brought them out of Egypt's bondage. It's true that they had to obey the command of the Lord. They had to move when they were told to move, stop when they were told to stop. But it was God that brought them out of Egypt's bondage. It was God that, that sent the plagues. And it was God that led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was God that made the Red Sea open so they could march through dry shod. And it was God that pulled the sea together again and drowned Pharaoh and the army as they came along in hot pursuit. So Moses tried to just ingrain this in their thinking. God brought us out from thence. And say, I'd like to remind you tonight, if you profess to be a Christian, if you're out of the bondage and the clutches of sin tonight, you're out for only one reason. God brought you out. I've heard some testimonies, if you could take it at face value, the individual reached down, took a hold of his bootstraps, uh, and lifted himself up. Uh, but I've never really seen anyone do that. I know I could not do that. Uh, I was so securely bound. Uh, had not God come and liberated me, I would have never uh, been set free. And so if you're really free tonight, uh, it's because uh, that God brought you out. It was a definite work of the Holy Spirit. Now the second thing I want you to notice, God wanted to bring them in. Let me say that again. It sounds so simple, but it's so basic. God wanted to bring them in. Now Moses made it plain that the deliverance from Egypt's bondage was not the full plan of God. It was only a step in God's plan that they might go on in to Canaan land. I'm sure that you've heard many sermons and you've read many things about the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt's bondage, one of the greatest things that God ever did for mankind. But really, getting out of Egypt was not God's plan. It was only a step in God's plan. Let me try to illustrate that to where it might be impressed on your thinking. Maybe you'll kind of get the drift of my thought then. Suppose I was down here in a little town uh, called Wichita, and I was securely bound there by a captor, and suppose uh, some individual at a town called St. Louis, Missouri, would say, I'm going to go down to Wichita, Kansas, and I'm going to overcome the capture of that fellow Daniel Stafford. I'm going to sever his bonds and set him free and bring him back uh, to St. Louis. And suppose that individual came to Wichita, and true to his word, he did overcome my captor, he severed my bonds, and he brought me to a little town called Kansas City. Some of you have heard of that town, you know. Now, I want you to talk back to me. You've always wanted to talk back to a preacher. Don't shake your head, even if it rattled. I couldn't understand it. I want you to talk to where I can hear you. Now, when I'm in Kansas City, am I in St. Louis? Well, I mean, is any portion of me in St. Louis? Do you mean to tell me that Kansas City and St. Louis are two distinct municipalities? So when you're in one, you're not in the other? Well, is any portion of me back in Wichita? I'm completely out of Wichita. But not a bit of me is in St. Louis. Are you catching on? Now, he brought us out from thence. 
that he might bring us in to the good land which he swore unto our father. Miraculous delivering to get him on this side of the Red Sea. But if you stop there, his plan has not materialized. It's only started, but it failed to come to fruition. And so God wanted to bring them in. Now, God has no desire for them to stop between the Red Sea and Canaan. Of course, they were afraid of the giants and the report, uh, but the same God that could make the sea stand at attention, he could take care of a little uh, uh, group of giants. Uh, but of course, uh, they didn't go on in, but God had no plan uh, for them to stop. And did you know that this is the fatal mistake of so many people that are truly converted? Now, a lot of people just give a mental assent that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, they do what they call making a decision for Christ. Uh, that's not conversion. But when a person is truly quickened in the life of the birth of the Spirit, God does a miraculous work in conversion. But God does that work for the express purpose that they'll go on into the experience of entire sanctification. And as miraculous and marvelous and glorious as it is to be liberated from the bondage of sin, if one stops there, it won't be long until there's going to be uh, spiritual uh, tragedy. And so uh, God had no plan for them uh, to stop. And God wants to bring every one of us into the experience uh, of holiness. Uh, now, in Hebrews, the 13th chapter, in verse 12, uh, it tells us why that uh, uh, Jesus suffered. It said, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. And then in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verses 25 through 27, it tells us why Jesus gave himself. There the apostle said, Christ also loved the church. The word church means the called out ones. They've been called out of the bondage of sin into the liberty of grace. So Christ loved the called out ones and gave himself for the called out ones that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. For what purpose? That he might present it unto himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And then, of course, Hebrews 12, 14 tells us how important the experience of holiness is. There again, the apostle Paul said, Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, a lot of people have been intimidated by the beautiful doctrine of holiness. I've not always been in the holiness church. I call myself a, a beginner, you know. I've been in about 46 years. But I started out in the largest Protestant denomination that we have. Same one Billy Graham is a member of. You can't help but sin. You've got to sin every day in thought, word, and deed. Well, did you ever believe that Brother Stafford never did? I didn't believe it when I was with him. I argued with him while I was with him, and, and I left him, and I came to the holiness crowd, and I've been with him ever since. But, you know, I have never been embarrassed about the beautiful doctrine of holiness. I talked for an hour and five minutes to the ex-vice president of the United States, Dr. John Nance Garner. He was vice president two terms uh, under uh, Mr. Roosevelt. 
lives out in New Valley, Texas, and there at his home, had a little uh, library there, pictures of Stalin and the different uh, ones that they visited over there. I talked to him for an hour and five minutes about his soul. He said, you're trying to get me to join your church. I said, I don't want you in my church. I said, I want you to get to God. He's never been born again. He's got a kinsman that taught at our school down here at Bethany, and uh, he urged me to go to visit him. If I went to hold a revival there, which I did. And when he saw that I didn't want him in the church, that I was talking about really praying through, repenting and turning from sin. Well, he got nervous. Well, he said, my mother told me when I was young, if I loved everybody, I'd make it to heaven. He said, I believed it then and I believe it now. I said, Mr. Garner, I said physical love is a great thing, but it won't get a person to heaven. It takes divine love uh, to get an individual uh, to heaven. Uh, and uh, I, I talked to him. There was the bodyguard uh, sitting there. And uh, I talked to him for a little bit. And I thought I'd uh, stayed all the time I'd dare. And I got up to leave. And he said, sit down. You're supposed to talk to me. Well, a fellow been married as long as I have. When you're talked to like that, you sit down, you know. So I talked to him again. And then I thought it was time to leave, and I got up, and he said the same thing. Sit down, you're supposed to. And I talked to him for an hour and five minutes about holiness. I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't intimidated. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, and I have never seen a group that, that made me embarrassed about the beautiful doctrine of holiness. Don't take the tuck head. I know that there's a lot of fanaticism. I know a lot of people claim an experience and they're not consistent in their living, but those that have really had the experience and live it every day, they're like a shining light in this old darkened world. And so the last thing I want you to notice, one can be out but not in. Let me say it again. One can be out but not in. Now this is the fact that everyone should realize. One can be out of Egypt's bondage and they can have the Red Sea between them and Egypt and still not be in Canaan. I wish that truth could be so ingrained within the thinking of every person until they'd never get over it. You can be completely out of Egypt. Egypt is a type of sin. You can be all the way out of Egypt, have the Red Sea as a clear line of demarcation establishing the fact that you're separated from Egypt and still not be where God wants you to be. You're not over in Canaan land. You can be completely out of Egypt, not have one hook left in Egypt. You know, I've thought that many a time it'd be wonderful if our people could get what I term sanctified stubbornness. I've seen some people so stubborn until they'd really do things that would work against them. If they could just get that sanctified and turn it against the devil, they wouldn't be up and down like a spiritual yo-yo giving in to every suggestion that the devil would make. And I like the fact that it looked like Moses had sanctified stubbornness. When he said, we're going to go to worship, why, why uh, the Pharaoh said, well, now uh, you men go ahead but leave you women at home. He knew it wouldn't be long until they'd have missed meal cramps and they'd be coming back to Mama's uh, table uh, and he didn't have to worry about them leaving as long as Mother stayed with the kitchen stove. Of course, they didn't have stoves in, whatever they cooked with. No, no, he said, this is not going to be a segregated worship party. No, no, no. We're all going. Mom's going to go and all the young'uns are going to go. 
And of course, after a while, finally, Pharaoh got disgusted and said, well, go ahead, but leave your possession. And it was then, you remember, that Moses said, no, sir, not one hoof will be left. And it wouldn't be wonderful if every person, when they make a start to go with God, or just make a complete spiritual roundup and say goodbye everything that looks like sin, goodbye every questionable practice, goodbye every questionable association. I'm going to go with God and by God's grace be what God would have me to be. So many spiritual tragedies could be averted. But you know, a lot of people are all the way out of Egypt. They don't have a hoof in Egypt but they're still not in Canaan. Now, there's a lot of people that profess they've got uh, hoof disease, you know. they still got some hoofs over in Egypt. Uh, but uh, you can be all the way out of Egypt. You can hold the Bible standard and still not be uh, in uh, Canaan land. Now, had you ever stopped to think what a miracle that the deliverance from Egypt's bondage actually was? I preached on it for years. I listened to others preach. I've read the story over and over, as you have. But one day, I just seemed like the blinds were taken off my eyes. You can have a preconceived notion about something, and even though you read it, it doesn't filter through to your thinking apparatus. You still are bound by that preconceived notion. Over in the city of Indianapolis, we have that ungodly 500-mile race ever made. And uh, the drunken orgy, and they block the streets until the traffic is so impeded you can't get around the center or down around 16th Street uh, that leads out to the uh, uh, raceway there. And uh, really, uh, uh, it's quite a thing. They estimate that there's about 300,000 that attends that race. Uh, and of course, uh, they've got up all their first eighth booths, and they've got uh, these emergency units parked uh, ever so often, and they've got this thing and that thing and the other thing. And it's amazing how many they have to take to the hospital, and how many they have to take to the clinics, and how many they have to take this. Only 300,000 to that race. But here's about 3 million people, 600 of the adults, and of course the Jew, he thought that it was a sign of God's favor if he had a large family, a large number of children. And it'd be a conservative number to say they had five children to the family, and if they did, that meant there was at least 3 million in that group that came out of Egypt's bondage. And here they are, 3 million of them. They don't have a bottle of Mercurochrome amidst the whole crowd, don't have one Band-Aid, and yet every one of them gets out and not a kid stubs his toe. Now you beat that. Nothing but God could direct a crowd like that. They didn't have any first aid stations or anything else, and not a young'un got lost. Every young'un was with his mama when he went across the Red Sea and made it over on the other side. That proves that God can do uh, what uh, the effort of the human uh, cannot do. But that was one of the most miraculous deliverance. Three million people, just say conservatively. Did you realize it would have taken two freight trains uh, one mile long uh, to haul just one day's food for that crowd? Stand two freight trains a mile long out here on the track side by side, fill every car to the top with something to eat, and that crowd could eat every morsel of it in just one day. It would have taken four freight trains one mile long to haul the firewood to cook that food. Stand four freight trains out there side by side a mile long, fill every boxcar with all the wood you could, and they'd burn every splinter of it uh, in just one day uh, to cook uh, that food. 
took 11 million gallons of water for drinking and washing that was needed for just one day. Think about 11 million gallons of water for just one day. And the food for that crowd would have cost $4 million a day at 1960 prices. Can you remember 1960? You remember how you complained how high the food uh, uh, bill was back then? Uh, would you kind of like to have uh, that uh, price uh, now? Oh, we didn't know how to enjoy it when they could, did we? That's right. Took $4 million a day at 1960 prices. And then here's where I was so blinded. You get a preconceived notion and you just hold on it. You can stare at the light and can't see it. And I've heard the different arguments. Now, did he really make the C standard attention? Uh, and uh, this thing and that thing and the other thing? Well, now, I never have doubted that God made that water congeal and stand at attention and made it just roll back until the bottom was dry enough till they got a little dust on their feet to where they could kind of put in the devil's eyes a testimony that God had brought them through dry shot. I never had questioned that. But I had the idea that he made this uh, water stand up, a valley maybe uh, uh, 300 yards wide, uh, and uh, to uh, this opening uh, they marched. How foolish could I have been? Did you know that in all probability, God made that water stand back and open a place three miles wide? There's about 18 inches between a marching soldier and the average individual, if you'll put them here at 5,000 abreast, it'll take an opening about three miles wide for them to march and unison across. And if they went across 3,000 abreast, it would take a line of 600. There'd be 5,600 long marching through. Wasn't too long till Pharaoh's old boys got there, but they sure hadn't worked their shocks over or something. You know, it wasn't long till those wagons uh, and those chariots, they, they just took the uh, St. Vitus dance and they began to shake. And then it wasn't long till those, uh, what was holding the uh, wheels on came off and there they were, a dragon. And when they got out there at a certain place, then God let the waters come to again. Now, they tell us that if that crowd, when they came to a halt at night, and for them, for them to camp one night, it took the space two-thirds the size of the state of Rhode Island for them to stop one night. And yet God got every youngin' out of there, not a one of them skinned their knee or stubbed their toe, didn't have a Band-Aid or any mercurial chrome. No one got lost. Who could do that? except an almighty God uh, that sees uh, all uh, things. And so God brought them out uh, in a miraculous way. Now one can rebel and fail God and die in the wilderness uh, just as the Israelites did. Uh, and the tragedy of it, it happens in every revival. So many people uh, are going to lament over the fact that in a revival uh, they felt the guilt of committed sin. And they asked God to forgive them and God did forgive them but they were willing to stop there. But that's not God's plan for your life. God wants to get you out of Egypt, sure, but he wants you to get you out of Egypt for the purpose of carrying you on in to the good land. Now, the greatest tragedy today is the fact that so many people are mentally wandering as the Israelites physically wandered in the wilderness. 
The Israelites, they wandered in the wilderness through the years. And a lot of people are mentally wondering, well, I wonder if I'd just really have to do this. I wonder if I'd react in this way. I wonder if I'd feel this. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. And a lot of people never make spiritual progress because they're spending their time mentally wondering. I tell you, it's wonderful to know that you have been brought out. I like that uh, song that said, I can tell you the time uh, and I can show you the place uh, where the Lord came in and he saved me by his grace. I cannot tell you how, but I can tell you now that Jesus uh, saves me. And how wonderful to know that you've uh, been brought in. Now, when I got in the holiness movement a little better than 40 years ago, there was a song we used to sing so often and I hear it so seldom now I can't remember the last time. I'm over the Jordan tide. The waters did there abide, did there divide. I'm in the land of Canaan, abundantly satisfied. How wonderful uh, when we actually go on in uh, to that good land uh, experience. Now, something that's a little better than both of those, how wonderful to know that you're in right now. After all of the opposition of the enemy, after all the hills that you've had to climb, all the battles you've had to ensue in, God's grace has held you steady and God has kept you clean. And tonight you're in that good land experience. I'll never forget, I went to my first pastorate and uh, there was a little lady there, little modest, holiness woman looking like, and she'd sit down about the second seat here. And back there in my young days, I used to ask everybody that knew they're saved and sanctified every time I was going to give an altar call. And so this woman would raise her hand. I certainly had no question mark about her. One day I went to the post office, the little town, to get my mail. Had about six letters, and one of them was postmarked from the little town, and my curiosity was stirred. So I opened that letter first. She started off by saying, Brother Stafford, you'll be surprised to know that I was sanctified today. Well, she had me dead to right. I'm a very curious individual. And so, and when I saw her name, I was utterly shocked. But now nothing to do but read the rest of the letter. She said, Brother Stafford, time after time, You've said everybody that knows you're saved and sanctified, raise your hand. She said, each time I'd raise my hand, for I thought you were looking at me. But she said, each time I raised it, I raised it with a question mark. Isn't it sad that a lot of people are more concerned about what the preacher thinks than what Almighty God actually knows? You're not going to have to pass the bar of my judgment or any other preacher. But you're going to have to give an account unto God. And a lot of people will live with the uncertainty of their relationship to God, but they'll try to convince some individual. She said, time after time, I raised my hand. But she said this morning, and that was back when the gasoline was rationed, tires were rationed, sugar and meat and, and the different things were rationed. Her husband wasn't converted, and so he'd only let her come to church one time a week, Sunday morning. I lived about three miles outside the little town. And she said this morning, 
She said, I was sweeping my front room. They had a little house out there that had never been introduced to paint. Her husband worked out in the timber, cut these uh, uh, logs to a certain size for pupwood. She said, I was sweeping my front room, and she said, I was singing that song, I'm Pressing. She said, I got to verse 2, where it said, rejecting everything that bids me stay, I'm pressing toward the glory land. She said, Brother Stafford, I was just about in the middle of my front room when I got to that place where it said, rejecting everything that bids me stay. She said, I dropped my broom, I fell on my knees, I threw my hands in the air, and she said, I cried out and said, Lord, I'm tired of this. I'm ready now to reject everything that bids me stay. And if you ever had anybody to start shouting in a letter, that's exactly what she did. Oh, she said, Brother Stafford, he's come, he's come. I know that I'm sanctified. My husband won't allow me to come to church until Sunday morning, but I can't wait till Sunday morning to tell you that I know that I'm sanctified. Well, I won't shock you when I tell you in just a little while her husband prayed through. They both got in, and they've been in about 40 years. And when the others started getting whirly, they still held true. Last I saw her, she looked like a decent-looking woman should look, you know, that professes uh, to have the Holy Spirit abiding uh, on the inside. But there's a lot of people that are struggling with question marks. They're more concerned about the evaluation of the human than they are uh, of uh, the divine. Uh, I had uh, a lady in my church... Uh, I tell you right now, she nearly killed me. Uh, she was one of the most talented persons I've ever seen. Uh, and she studied theology three years. She could spit it out by rote. Uh, uh, I tell you, you have to be on your P's and Q's to stay up with her. And she could just uh, get more new people in, and then she could tear up things better than anybody you've ever seen with such foolish moves. And so God began to move. The church began to grow. New people began to pray through. Uh, and uh, God was moving and so uh, I uh, uh, got to my study about 6 o'clock. That was my normal time. And I could hear the phone ringing before I opened the door. I opened the door. And uh, when I uh, said, hello, uh, here she was, a-weeping and a-crying. She said, Brother Stafford, I haven't been able to sleep all night. She said, I've been trying, but I don't know how long to get you. She said, I've been waiting. I knew that you'd be at your study at about 6 o'clock. And uh, she said, Brother Stafford, get on your knees and pray for me. I feel like I'm dropping into hell. Well, there she was that professed everything in the book and a little more too. She knew all the terminology and knew exactly how to say the right thing at the right place. You'd be impressed with her ability. But now then she said, I feel like I'm dropping into hell. And uh, so I... Tried to talk to her a little bit, uh, but uh, she said, Brother Stafford, she said, you know me. She said, you know I don't cut my hair. You know I don't paint my face. You know I don't wear rings. You know I don't wear any stirrups in my ears. Uh, don't wear any log uh, chains around my throat. Uh, uh, you know I make my dresses long enough to cover my knees. Uh, she said, do you believe God would force me to be sanctified? Oh, I said, you are looking at it 
totally wrong. Sanctification is not some penalty that God inflicts on us. No, no, no. Sanctification is the most glorious work that God enrocks in the heart. It's that conditioning grace that will condition our nature to stand unafraid in the presence of a holy God. And would you just let me say this? A lot of people have the confused notion that these outward standards is holiness. No, no. Every one of the things that she said, if you get truly converted, you'd have to do them. I never preach on any phase of worldliness to get a person sanctified. I preach against all worldliness to get people converted. And a lot of people have been confused at that point. They've made their standards their holiness, and they've just about become cynical and bitter. No, 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 no. You can be as clean externally as a hound's tooth. I don't know how clean that is, but I've heard that expression quite often. But still be void of the sanctifying grace. And a lot of people are deceived at that point. Well, she had quite a struggle. And she asked me a question that challenged me. She said, Brother Stafford, why is it that seemingly new people can just come right out of the rough can come to the services and a service or two seem like they can pray clear through. Some of us have hung around the church for 20 years and seemingly we can't get in. Well, she had challenged me. I had to come up with an answer and then all at once I remembered what Uncle Buddy said. He said the reason so many people have a struggle with the beautiful work of heart holiness, he said so many people try to go in head first. They want to figure it all out. He said, what you need to do is let your heart go in on the fast express and let your old noggin come in on the slow freight. Just yield to God and let God do something in your heart and then let the Holy Spirit inform your noggin what has taken place. But most people are seeking for a like emotional trait of some kinsman or neighbor that they have seen or heard and they're really not seeking for a clean heart. They're trying to go in head first when we need to go in heart first. Let God do the work in the heart and then let the Holy Spirit inform our old noggin what has taken place. I went to hold a revival meeting 1955, it was the month of February. It's been a few years ago now. Come this February, it'll be 30 years ago. Little sleepy southwestern Oklahoma town. Arrived on a Thursday to start in Thursday night over two Sundays, 11 nights. That first night when I stood to preach, a boy about 15 came in. His right leg was amputated at the hip. He had light metal crutches. Took a seat on the last seat. When we had made our way back to the parsonage, I said to the good pastor, I said, the young boy that came in last tonight, who is he? He said, Brother Stafford, I want to talk to you about him. I've been to his home today. He said, that's the son of my Sunday school superintendent. He said, my superintendent runs a little ranch out here. He's the financial backbone of our little church. He said, let me tell you the story. He said, about a year ago, he said, a white blister formed on that boy's leg. He said, that blister grew steadily larger until it necessitated they rush him to the doctor, which they did. 
The doctor made the examination, came out to the father and mother and said, if you would allow me, I'd like to call in three other doctors to corroborate my findings. The permission was granted, the doctors were summonsed, and after their examination, they agreed with the first doctor. And so the doctor took the mother and dad aside and said, I'm sorry to tell you, but your boy has cancer of the bone. It's that very deceptive type, you'll think you'll have it arrested, but then it'll break out at some unsuspected place. Now, if you're not very careful, this leg will swell three times its normal size. It'll burst open. He'll have blood hemorrhages. He could bleed to death. They tried to avoid an amputation. They took him to the Hoxie Clinic in Dallas. People come from the different countries of Earth to that clinic, but they couldn't help him. They took him to various places, but they met with defeat every place. As the doctor suggested it happened, the leg did burst one night. The mother held two fingers in one hole and a thumb in another, for each time the heart would beat, the blood would gush. They brought him to the University Hospital on the east side of Oklahoma City. And there, with everything that medical science seemingly had to try to combat the disease, a noted specialist donated his time as a challenge, I guess. And they did everything they could but they still were losing the battle. One day the doctor stood by the boy's bed and said, son, you've got a decision to make today. It's your leg or it's your life. The boy said, well, doctor, if there's no alternative, I certainly don't want to die. He said, take the leg. They amputated the leg right at the hip. Seemed like the bloom of health came to his cheek. Strength seemed to flood back into his body. Soon they gave him these crutches, and he was soon learned to skip up and down the car to the hospital. They allowed him to go home. But he hadn't been home but a little while till one day, like frightened steeds, pains began to race in his chest. They began to reoccur so frequently until it necessitated they rush him to the doctor again, which they did. And the doctor took the mother and dad aside. I'm sorry. But when they got the leg, they didn't get the cancer. The mother didn't go out to tell the boy. But the pastor said, Brother Stafford, just a little while before they discovered that blister on the boy's leg, said he came to the altar and was gloriously converted. Said he's not a loud, vociferous teenager. He's a very quiet, reserved type. But he said there's been such a transformation in his living until no one has questioned his conversion. He said, I went to his home today just a little before you arrived. He said, if that boy only has three months to live, I felt obligated to go to his home and talk to him about his soul. He said, I didn't spend any time in light chatter. He said, I walked in and I said, Bill, you know the story now. Bill, how is it with your soul? Just the night before in prayer meeting, before I arrived on Thursday night, he had stopped his mother in the middle aisle and said, Mother, tell me the truth. When they got my leg, they didn't get the cancer, did they? And she burst into tears, and that told him the story. He said, Bill, how is it with your soul? And that pastor said, Brother Stafford, I'll never get over what the boy said. I've never had anything to affect me more forcibly. I believe now that nearly 30 years have slipped by 
Without the interchange of one word, I can tell you what the pastor said that he told him. He said the boy looked at him and he said, Pastor, I know I'm going to die. I'm going to meet God. It wouldn't be so bad if I were sanctified. For only the sanctified can stand and afraid in his presence. But I'm not sanctified. If I've ever had anything to ever grip me with the force of a vice, that did. I never have been a sound sleeper. I sleep by snatches. But in the night hour I could hear that. And I'd pray. And I'm glad to tell you, on a Saturday night, the Holy Ghost spoke to him. I saw Bill get his crutches. I saw him get out in the aisle and start toward the altar. Some with good limbs, they beat him to the altar, but I didn't extend the altar call. I was a short altar call that night. When Bill got there, I knelt right directly across the altar from him, and we started to pray. Well, I started out in my loud, bombastic way, but not Bill. His lips were moving, but he was not of that temperament. Well, I prayed for a little while, and all at once I stopped and opened my eyes, and I'm glad I opened my eyes when I did. <laughs> I wish you could have looked on the side I saw. Seemed like a light had been turned on in his countenance. And he was looking right straight at me. He flicked the tears to clear his eyes. Then slowly his hand started across that altar, and I met him about halfway at no man's land. And the grip of that handshake seemed to shout in about 17 hallelujah languages. Bill, he, with the aid of those crutches, he got up and braced himself and raised his hand just about like this. He said, I know I'm sanctified. Didn't shout. That was all the emotion. I left that little sleepy Oklahoma town, and I'm certainly not trying to uh, play on your sympathy. God's been good to me. But uh, in my better than 30 years as an evangelist, I guess I got one of the poorest offerings. Well, you couldn't call it an offering. I didn't even get expenses. No offering. But I've looked on that as the greatest meeting God has ever allowed me to participate in. Greater than any camp meeting or anything else I've had the privilege of being at. For just a few months after that, we moved to Oklahoma City for the children to go to college. And this pastor had hurt his back and had to retire. And when I saw him, I got to him real quick. I said, tell me about Bill. He said, Brother Stafford, it would have encouraged your faith. He said, the doctors missed it. He lingered until June. Said he weighed less than 40 pounds when he crossed the divided worlds. Said the pain became excruciating. But he said from that night he was sanctified until he crossed over. No one ever heard him murmur. No one ever heard him complain. He said, I've never been around a human that had the fragrance of another world like that boy had. He said when he got so weak, he couldn't lift his little bony arms off of the sheets. He said, I'd go to visit him not to help him. I couldn't help him. He said, selfishly, I'd go to visit him. Or he said, when I'd be seated by his bed for a short period of time, he said, I had a kindred feeling to Moses. I felt like I'd on holy ground. Bill's been across the divide of worlds now. Come this February, come this coming June of 85, will be 30 years. But I can hear it as clear tonight as I heard it that first time. Pastor, 
I know I'm going to die. I'm going to meet God. Wouldn't be so bad if I were sanctified. For only the sanctified can stand unafraid in his presence. Now you can see why I look on that as the great meeting. I heard Bill. <laughs> when he said, I know I'm sanctified, let me ask you. Do you know that right now? Now that question caused one of two responses. Either something whelmed up and you said, by his grace, yes. Or either you started wrestling with question marks. If you're wrestling with question marks, you can't afford to live that way. I'm going to ask Sister Lee to come one more time and play again, almost persuaded. I want you to stand to your feet, please. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Oh,